We're going this summer through a series of lessons called Back to the Basics. And I decided I'd start out with the hub of the Bible. And the hub of the Bible we've been talking about uh, beginning last week is found in Acts chapter 2. And of course, we know that the hub of a wheel is the center. And the spokes that go out uh, go both ways, backwards and forwards, depending on where that tire's spinning. And uh, that's what Acts 2 is about. Everything, or I should say most everything written in the Old Testament points to that day, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then we come into the New Testament. And most everything points back to the events of what occurred on Acts 2. In Acts chapter 11, Peter reminds the audience that there were things that happened in the beginning that happened to the Jews and the Gentiles. And he said it happened at the beginning and the beginning of that Christian movement, the beginning of the religion of Christ, the beginning of the gospel age. However you want to call it, it happened in the beginning in Acts chapter 2. So we have a in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and we have a, a beginning in Acts chapter 2, and that is the day the Holy Spirit came and gave power to the apostles. It was the day that the church came into existence. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, and I will build my church. Now he died, was buried, and was resurrected, and spent some 40 days with his apostles afterwards. And then in Acts chapter 1, we read about the ascension of Jesus back to the Father. And then in Acts chapter it's, it's 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it's here. And so it's the beginning, the beginning of so many blessings that we take for granted today. And, uh, and so I want to go back to some of the things we were addressing last week. <clears throat> and mm, here we go. We talked about the hub of the Bible. And then we come into Acts chapter 1. I just want to make sure that's it. Okay, Acts chapter 1 in verses of 1 through 5 and 8, he says, And being assembled together with them, uh, he commanded them not to depart from, uh, from Jerusalem. Can we move that up? <laughs> All right. And then he says, For you have heard what I have said to you, that John truly baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so what he's pointing to and what he's talking about is the apostles being baptized in the Holy Spirit, just as John had mentioned at the beginning of his ministry. You remember in Matthew chapter 3 where John said those very words at the baptism of Jesus. He said, one is coming mightier than I. I'm not even able to untie his bootstraps, if you will. 
his sandal straps. He says, he, he will baptize you in the spirit and fire. But here, the idea of fire is missing. Fire has something to do with punishment. Fire has something to do with judgment. Here he's saying to the apostles, I promised you, as did John, that you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, and John chapter 16. It is the story of Jesus in the upper room when they were having the Lord's Supper. Actually, they were having the Passover, but then they broke out into the Lord's Supper where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And then he had this long discourse. You see, what was going on was he was leaving his disciples. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to go away. And they didn't understand it at the moment. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another comforter, another helper, another advocate. That's the idea. And then he says, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, he was telling them that they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so when the day of Pentecost had fully come, we see what was going on. It says, they're all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound as of a rushing mighty wind and sat upon each of them 12 uh, divided tongues as of fire. And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were being baptized in the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised, just as John had promised. And so the application of being baptized in the Holy Spirit applies to the apostles and it applies to the apostles only, not to anybody else. And that's why Peter would say it happened on them as at us at the beginning. The beginning is when that took place. The beginning, the day of Pentecost. And so what I want us to look at here is that the baptized with the Holy Spirit is in yellow and uh, it is equal to being filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. And also it says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now notice that uh, in the Greek, there's what's called the genitive absolute. To you, that means nothing. But what it means is this. It means you can't separate the two clauses. What one does, the other follows. What one follows, the other does. And so he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall or you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You can't separate the two. So if the Holy Spirit had come upon them, guess what? They received power. So that's the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea of receiving the Holy Spirit. If they receive the Holy Spirit, they receive power. We're going to have a at some point, we're going to have a, a class on the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll talk more about uh, this section there at that time. But here we find what was going to happen on that day. And uh, if we can move forward, brother, we're having technical difficulties, so I 
I apologize. Well, notice in the yellow it says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so in Jerusalem, you remember that in Isaiah from last week, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that he said, the law would go forth out of Zion, his word out of Jerusalem. So Isaiah is pointing to Pentecost. He's pointing to Acts 2, where Pentecost is found in our Bibles. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, tells his apostles, he says, I want you to tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So to be endued with power from on high is equivalent to being baptized in the Holy Spirit in verses 4 and 5 of Acts 1. And it is equivalent to what verse 8 says, which is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the idea. And so now we're back to Isaiah chapter 2. It says, now it shall come to pass in the last days. In the last days. Interestingly enough, Acts chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us, he says, in the last days I will pour forth out of my spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. The last days are connected. The last days in Isaiah 2 are pointing toward Pentecost. Peter begins quoting Joel as he begins preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he quotes Joel chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, where it says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit. And so Peter's saying, that application, the fulfillment of that prophecy is occurring now, the day of Pentecost. And then he says that the mountain of the Lord's house, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, we can read that the Lord's house is the church, right? He says, you, need to, you ought to behave yourselves in the house of God. The church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so the Lord's house is the church. In the last days, day of Pentecost, the Lord's house, the church will be established. All nations shall flow to it. When the apostles began speaking in tongues, there were 15 different nations cited. And it said, every nation under heaven were, were there in the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost. So we have all nations in Isaiah, and then we have the all nations in Acts chapter 2 being the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. He said, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. Notice ways is in green. We shall walk in his paths. Ways is equivalent with paths. For out of Zion, that's the spiritual or sacred name for Jerusalem, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. So ways, paths, 
and law are equivalent, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Look at all the parallelisms there. In other words, words that are synonymous with the other. And the Jews in particular were ones who always use what they called Hebrew parallelism. And you can find that all over the Old Testament. And you can find it with Paul. Paul is famous for his parallelisms. And so we find here his ways, his paths, his law, and his word would go forth out of Zion. Well, what did Peter preach that day? Everyone says he preached the gospel, and he did. But he was preaching what? What Isaiah prophesied, his ways, his paths, his law, his word. So that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The body of doctrine, the body of teaching from Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting that when you go back to the Old Testament, this is how significant the day of Pentecost is. When you go back to the Old Testament, and you remember that the Jews were uh, uh, leaving Egypt. They were exiting, exodus. They were exiting Egypt. And so from the day they left Egypt to the day they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, and when Moses was giving them the law, was 50 days. What did we say Pentecost meant? You remember? 50, right? 50, because it was 50 days from the crucifixion. Jesus was with his apostles for 40 days, so Acts chapter 1 is the end of the, the, the end of those 40 days. So there's 10 more days to go before Pentecost. And then Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, now it's arrived. It's the 50th day since the crucifixion. So when the Jews left Egypt and made it to Sinai and Moses came down with the law, it was 50 days. How do I know? because it was the third month in which Pentecost fell. Pentecost always fell in the third month. And Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 tells us, and it, it's the third month. So we learn that the law was given on the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost followed the Sabbath. That meant Pentecost was the first day of the week. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the first day of the week. And guess what? The law would go forth out of Zion. Peter and the rest of the apostles begin preaching. And so just like Moses gave the law in Pentecost, the apostles are giving the law, the gospel, on Pentecost in the New Testament. It's also interesting that after Moses had given the law to the Jews at Sinai, 3,000 souls were killed. And that was in connection to the golden calf that they had built. You remember? 3,000 souls were killed. But you come into the New Testament, the law is given, and what? 3,000 souls are added to the church. There's a connection here. This day is significant. It has a lot of meaning. And there's a lot of symbolism here that we 
sometimes don't realize. But as we think about the day of Pentecost, I want to think more along the lines of, of Peter's sermon. Uh, let's see what's up, up ahead. So then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Luke is writing his gospel account. It's called Luke, right? But who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. So Acts is basically Luke part two. Luke is writing about the life and times of Jesus, part one, and then in part two, the life and times of the first century church that he established on the day of Pentecost. And where? In what city? The city of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah prophesied 750 years earlier. So he says, Behold, I send the promise of my father. In other words, my father's promise. The father's promise was that they were to receive power. Promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. I don't know if you can read that. I, I don't think I can. You know, I can read it here. So here he says, behold, I send the promise of my father. They're in the city of Jerusalem. They're endued with power from on high. Now we go to Acts 1. Let's compare what Luke said in Luke 24 with Acts chapter 1, where he says, and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. There it is. But to wait for the promise of the father, same promise, the father's promise, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You understand that the Bible is its own best commentary. It explains itself. What Luke said in Luke 24 is exactly what's being said in Acts chapter 1. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit again is to be endued with power from on high. Literally, it means to be clothed with power. That's the same word found in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. He says, uh, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Other translations say, have put on Christ. So we find here the same promise, the same city, Jerusalem, and the same occurrence, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he's telling them, the apostles, that they need to stay in Jerusalem in order for this to happen upon them. The religious world today reads these passages and they think this must happen to me. And so they think that they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit, and yet the application that Jesus makes is only to his apostles. And so uh, that is another uh, stressing point to be found in Acts chapter 2. So we have those passages to look at and to see. 
And now we come into verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, but you shall receive power and be endued with power, be baptized in the Spirit, receive power, all the same thing. They're synonymous. They're parallels. Words meaning the same thing. So he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem is being stressed here because Isaiah stressed Jerusalem. He stressed it three times. He said, in the city of David, in Zion, in Jerusalem. They're all the same cities, same city. But notice that's Luke's, uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission right there. Remember, the Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew says, go make disciples of all the nations. Luke comes in and he says in his uh, gospel in Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, he says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. Now we come into Luke's uh, account, part two, in Acts chapter one, and he says that you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and then into all Judea and Samaria, and then what? To the end of the earth, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But that didn't start until Jerusalem, and then it went worldwide. It was a worldwide mission beginning at Jerusalem. All right, now as we come to the theme of Peter's sermon. Peter's theme is not baptism. We always talk about baptism because it's associated with Acts chapter 2. In fact, Peter preaches a sermon and then the people interrupt him. I wish this would happen. The, The people would interrupt him and say, men and brethren, what should we do? So they realize that they're in sin. They murdered Jesus. They put him on the cross. So they ask the question, what shall we do? And then Peter replies, repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. So here we find that uh, that's not part of his sermon. His sermon stopped And then they question, what shall we do? And then he provides the answer. So really, the theme of the sermon is Jesus. He begins a sermon in verse 21 saying, Jesus of Nazareth. He closes out his sermon in verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. So from beginning to end, it's about Jesus. But as we look at this idea of the sermon, it has three points. And many, many years ago, brethren who went to preaching school or whatever, they were always taught the perfect sermon is three points in a poem or three points in an illustration or something along that line. And, uh, That's pretty scriptural because Peter gives three points right here in this message, but also Paul does too. You remember that Paul was before Felix 
that wicked Felix, and he was trying to reason with him about Christ and the movement that he began. And he says he was reasoning with him about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. And what did Felix say? I'll think about it, and maybe at some more convenient time, I'll consider it. And uh, that is true when it comes to repentance. All of us know that, I think. It's hard to admit you're wrong. That's what repentance is really saying. I am wrong. I admit it. And I'm now going to change my life. I'm going to change and go into another direction. But those convenient days don't always come. That's why repentance, when Paul was preaching, he says, today is the day of salvation. If you need to repent, you repent now. You're not granted tomorrow. And so we need to be right with God always. And repentance is one way to become right with God. But there we find three points that Paul was preaching to Felix about. Repentance, self-control, and the judgment to come. I don't know if he had a poem or not. I don't think Paul was more, I don't think Paul was a poem reader. I really don't. Uh, he may have uh, told a lot of stories, but I don't think he was a poem reader. So the theme of the sermon is Jesus. And he is proved by the miracles he worked by the Spirit to be the Christ, to be the Son of God. Now, uh, if you go to, uh, if you have your Bibles, we don't, something happened where we could not, we've had technical difficulties this morning. Let's put it that way. So Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Get out your Bibles if you have them. There should be Bibles in the, on your seats someplace. All right, Acts 2. And uh, he says, beginning in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter is putting his credibility on the line here. You know, if I were to tell you a story, and I'm going to tell you a story that I read about concerning Alexander Campbell. Here, who knows who Alexander Campbell is? One, two, three. He was a leader of the restoration movement here in America, which was simply, let's go back to the Bible. Let's all be united upon the Bible. Well, he established a college in Bethany, Bethany, Virginia, which is now West Virginia, that part. And uh, he taught these boys to become preachers. And one of the boys was recounting how he would teach he would teach them, and but ever, but whenever he was going to get excited about delivering a new point or something that he really wanted to get across, 
he'd start walking and he'd take his watch out of his pocket and he'd start twirling around. He'd start twirling around like that. And the boys would say, oh, oh, he's got something important to say. And the people, or I should say, and the boys that graduated from those preaching schools, you know what they did when they got into the pulpit and they had something important to say? Remember, this is back in the 1800s when they had pocket watches. A great preacher by the name of G.C. Brewer. G.C. Brewer had a deep, deep voice, probably the deepest voice I have ever heard. But, I mean, it was just down, very, very low. And when he was preaching, he had two ways of delivering the message. And that was really, really low, deep thundering, deep voice. But when he got excited, when he had something to say, he's, I'd really get up there really high like this. And he started talking very high because he had a point and he was excited. So he went from one extreme to the other. And I, I say that because here in chapter two, verse 22, he says he begins a sermon. But prior to that, he really begins talking to the people. And in verse 14, it says, and Peter raised his voice. He raised his voice. He had something to say. He wasn't there just to say something. He had something to say. And it was important. And it was exciting. And he was all enthused about the message that he was going to give. And so it says he raised his voice. And you can imagine Peter here in this sermon doing just that. But here we find that Jesus was attested by God, approved by God to be the son of God. How? By the miracles that he worked. All right. It says by the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. God worked and more particular, it was the Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus who provided him the ability to do those miracles. Sometimes we often think, well, Jesus is God and he just did what he had to do. He could work miracles. Jesus was God, but he was also fully human. As human as the apostles. And the apostles needed the Holy Spirit to work miracles. Jesus as a man also needed the Holy Spirit to work miracles, which is the point in Matthew chapter 12. But here it says God worked through him. God, the Holy Spirit, worked through Jesus, working these miracles. And notice what it says, that you yourselves know. So I just told you three, three quick little stories about some men. It'd be hard for you to prove me wrong. It'd be hard to prove me right because you don't know the source material from where I got that information from. But if I were to tell you that I went down to the cemetery down the road here and I raised the dead and you were there as my witnesses, that would capture your attention. That's what Peter is saying here. He says, God worked through him miracles, wonders, and signs. 
He did all these things as you yourselves know. It could be at that point that someone would say, you're a liar. That's not how it happened. But that's not what happened. The crowd listened. So much so that 3,000 souls were convicted because they knew what Peter was talking about. And those 3,000 souls were baptized that day and added to the Lord's church. So we find here that Jesus Christ is proved to be the Son of God by the miracles that he worked. Also, he's proven to be the fulfillment of a prophecy. In Acts 2, beginning in verse 25, it says, For David says concerning him, Jesus, it says, and we're going to jump on down to uh, verse 27. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow my Holy One to see corruption. And then jump on down to verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You know where his tomb is, is what he's saying. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. He's talking about the resurrection. And he's showing that David said this. David prophesied this about eight to nine hundred years earlier. And so... He says, notice, he says, I will not leave, he will not leave my soul in Hades. That's where all souls go. Hades, we call it the Hedean world. When someone dies, your spirit leaves your body. That's, that's a definition of death. James 2.26, he said, faith without works is like the spirit without the body. Dead. So, when the spirit leaves the body, you're dead. The spirit goes to Hades. And so that's where we pick up the story that Jesus told concerning the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was over in uh, Abraham's bosom, paradise. Remember Jesus on the cross said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't talking about heaven. He was talking about the Hadean realm. So in paradise or in Abraham's bosom. And then he said there's a fixed gulf between that and torments where the rich man was. And so the verse here says that he will not leave my body in Hades. The King James says hell. It's not hell, but Hades. Hades is different than hell. Hades is the, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word sheol. And Gehenna is the word used for hell. So it's not hell, but Hades. And so he says, uh, he will not leave my soul in Hades. And of course, he was resurrected. And then he says that he will not have or see his body, uh, he will not see corruption to his body. 
In other words, there won't be decay. So when did Lazarus begin to stink? Fourth day, right? Jesus was raised what? The third day. He was not corrupted. His body was not corrupted. His spirit in the Hidean world, his body in the tomb, at the resurrection, both come together. And then Luke tells us our resurrection will be like his, just like his. So we find that David is prophesying all of this. And to the minds of the Jews, David, their king, the lineage of David is so important that they have no reason to argue with what Peter said here. And then finally, proven by the resurrection from the dead. And of course, he's talking about the resurrection already. But notice in verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you put to death, both Lord and Christ. The implication is he arose from the dead and he now reigns at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. That's called a resurrection. And so he begins by saying, therefore, Great preacher by the name of George Bailey used to say, when you see the word therefore, you need, know, you need to know why the word is there for. Because based upon everything that he just said, based upon those three points that he has been discussing, he says, therefore, based upon all this, God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Imagine putting yourself in their shoes. You've been longing for the Messiah. Your fathers have been longing for the Messiah. Your father's fathers have been longing for the Messiah. Going back all the way through the history of the Hebrew nation, they have been longing for the Messiah. They read about the coming of the Messiah. And Peter says, he came. And you killed him. Put yourself in their shoes. So the response, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's the remedy. It wasn't originally a part of the sermon. He's answering their question. But here's the remedy. Then Peter said to them, repent and let each of you, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's the gospel. That's the law. That's the ways that that's the path. That's all what Isaiah prophesied would come out of Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem, the gospel would spread. The church, the kingdom of Christ would spread. And then we can read about the spread of the gospel throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so we find here the remedy. 
the remedy for sin, the remedy for my sin, the remedy for your sin. Yes, it's the blood of Christ. But the point Peter is making here, he's saying, listen, in order for you to get to the blood of Christ, in order for you to have the access of the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed at the cross of Calvary, here's what you need to do. Come to him and say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I am now going to start doing what you want me to do rather than what I want to do. And I will be immersed in water, for that's the meaning of baptized. If you're subject to that invitation today, don't delay, don't wait. Make it today the day of your salvation, the day that you're baptized and put on Christ. Why don't you come forward now as together we stand and sing.